0: May God add his blessing to the reading of the scripture this morning and may the words from my mouth be just what we need to hear today. I forgot to mention an important birthday in, in our, my life and Shelly's life and the kid's life. Uh, Layla is going to be one year old. Layla is one of our dogs. She'll be one year, one year old this week. So We don't have to sing happy birthday to Layla. I don't think she'd know the difference anyway. But uh, there was a priest at a parochial school who wanted to talk to the kids about behavior in church. And so he asked them what rules their parents give them for going to a nice restaurant. He was leading up to, you know, we ought to behave ourselves even better in church than we do in a restaurant. And one kid said, well, before we go to the restaurant, my parents always tell me, don't play with your food. And another child said, don't be loud. disruptive and there was one little boy who just sat there very quietly and the priest said what rule do your parents give you before you go out to eat and the little boy said just one thing order something cheap (laughs) (laughs) if you have children you can relate it's not easy being a parent and sometimes it's not easy being a parent uh, in a restaurant with your children We've had our moments, and some of you in this room have have witnessed some of those moments, and so we can relate. I read about a lady who came home from the hospital with her second baby, and her sister came out to help her for a little while while she was uh, as she brought home the newborn, and she she offered to stay for a few weeks. Well, mom had read up on sibling rivalry and had seen it before in other kids, and so she sort of uh, tried to stay extra vigilant uh, and watch out for her two-year-old daughter, Robin, for any signs of jealousy or or any insecurity or, uh, you know, any kind of rivalry with the new baby. But Robin just seemed to adore her little sister from the very first day. She loved to help feed the baby, and she even offered to share her toys with her. And after a few weeks, Mom felt like they were doing fine, so... She could do okay without her sister's help, and she told her she could go home if she'd like. Well, the day came for her sister to go home, and as she watched her walk out to the car to leave, she heard an unbelievable cry of distress. And she looked around, and here comes little Robin screaming out the front door, Auntie, you forgot your baby. Oh. <laughs> it was easy for Robin to adjust, you see, because... She thought the new baby belonged to Auntie and was going to go home with her. <laughs> Another family had a strange twist on the reality of sibling rivalry. There was a little boy named Brian who's older of two brothers. He said, I don't want a new baby. He was determined when his mother told him that we were gonna, they were going to have a new baby. He said, no, I don't want a new baby. Brian had been fine with his younger brother whose name was Damien when he was born. So his mom and dad were surprised that Brian was acting like, like this over a, a new baby. And they spent some time trying to convince him that a new baby in the family would be fun, you know. It, it was a good thing. And then when he got bigger, they could play together and all that. Well, Brian made a stand about this new baby, and he said, No, nope, I will not budge. I do not want a new baby. That's that. Well, they, as time went on, uh, got closer and closer, and one day she sat. Mom sat him down and said, "Look, I, I really need to know what's what's the problem. Why don't you want a new baby?" He says, "Because I like Damien and I want to keep him." He thought they might have to. He might have to trade his brother Damien for the new baby. <laughs> so the Bible tells us many stories about sets of siblings. There was Cain and Abel, there was Isaac and Ishmael, there was Jacob and Esau, there was Joseph and his brothers, and there was Jesus and his brothers. There were the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, and Mary, Martha, Lazarus were all brothers and sisters. Some of these relationships turned out really well, some uh, not so well. Some had their rocky patches, but in the end, turned, it out, turned out okay and turned out positive. But in almost all these relationships, one of the siblings became more well-known than the other. And that was certainly true of the two brothers in today's story. In our Gospel reading, we're introduced to two brothers, Andrew and Peter. Andrew was the first disciple that Jesus called. But for the rest of the New Testament, we really don't hear a lot about andrew he's overshadowed by his brother simon peter it's interesting that before andrew was a disciple of jesus he was a disciple of john the baptist john was important in those days john had disciples people who followed him people who studied under him and learned from him just like jesus did we usually talk about how strange john the baptist was some of you will recall Larry's portrayal a couple of years, a few years back uh, of John the Baptist with his diet of locusts and wild honey and wearing skins and living in the desert. But John was considered by many people to be a prophet. Remember scripture says that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. But like Andrew, John lived in the shadow of another also, his younger cousin, Jesus. John's main role in life was to point out that someone greater than him was coming. And that's what he did. And one day when Andrew was nearby, John the Baptist spotted Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, look, it's Jesus, the Lamb of God. And Andrew made a decision. He decided to leave John the Baptist and instead to follow Jesus. Andrew, I'm sure, appreciated John the Baptist and followed, and, and went and followed Jesus, uh, appreciating all that John had done for him, but he needed more. And so that happens. We find something better. So we transfer our loyalty. So Andrew traded in John, I guess we could say, for Jesus. Pretty good trade. Reminds me of a book that was written years ago by a pastor who turned comedian. Some of you may know this name, maybe you won't, but his name was Grady Nutt, and he was a pretty funny guy. It was titled The Gospel According to Norton, this little story that he told. The Gospel According to Norton is a humorous but touching story about a young man a fictional character named Norton, who, like Andrew, was a disciple of John the Baptist. Well, the first time Norton met John the Baptist, he couldn't believe John's appearance. He described him like this. He said he wears a double-breasted camel hair suit, wrong side out. He he wore his platform high-top sandals, teased hair, the whole works. The first night he met him was the beginning of a deep relationship, a deep friendship with John. Norton said, in only four days, I was coming early to get a front row rock when he had a gathering. I became an ardent follower. He was my hero, unique, distinctive, outspoken, honest. I tried more and more to be like him. Until one afternoon, Norton was with John when John baptized Jesus. Norton says he was amazed at John's attitude toward Jesus, at his strange statements like, Why am I baptizing you, Jesus? You should be baptizing me, and I'm not worthy to tie your shoes. He was amazed at John's sense of awe in Jesus' presence. Later, Norton hears that Jesus has a group of disciples following him further up the river. One night, he goes to scout out this new teacher and his followers. The first time he hears Jesus teach, it happens. Here was the Messiah that John had been preaching about. In just three visits, Norton says, he transferred his membership. Like Andrew, he left John the Baptist and became a follower of Jesus. But one day, Jesus asked Norton if he had seen John lately. Norton chuckled, thinking about that crude former teacher of his. Jesus frowned. Then Jesus asked Norton why he was chuckling. Well, he said, he's still wearing that crazy camel hair suit, and he's still preaching until his throat hurts. And then he said a few other sarcastic things about John the Baptist. And at the, this point, Jesus, being disappointed with Norton, looked at him and said, Norton, do you know where you would be today if it weren't for John? John? Norton blushed, squirmed a little bit, looked down at the ground in shame, and he said, yeah, probably still be hanging around the market stealing food. Jesus said, exactly right. And at that point, Norton says, Jesus taught him an important lesson. that young idealists often find their Messiah and then spend their time belittling their forerunner, where they came from. At the time that Grady Nutt invented this character called Norton and made up this story, he was on staff at a seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he saw many young seminarians come in. So the school was, uh, had a more progressive view of Christianity. And it was much more progressive than they had grown up with. They would grown up very conservative. And the first thing that these young men would do often, he noticed, was to belittle and ridicule the conservative, fundamentalist, narrow-mindedness that they had come out of. Well, in the story of Norton, he was trying to tell these young men, remember where you came from. Would you be here today if it were not for that background? I make that point this morning because some of us has, have come to this church or other churches out of similar backgrounds that were that where we experienced more legalism than we cared for. We experienced more judgment and more rules and very strict strictness or else. And so gratefully we say I could never go back there, and yet we forget we're here today, and we're faithful and supportive, and it just may be that some of what we learned back then in that terrible place we used to be is producing fruit in our lives today. Let's not be too critical of people, too, who follow a different path regardless of where you are in your Christian life. John the Baptist had his faults. He was kind of a crazy man, but he pointed people toward Jesus. And Andrew did as well. And that's what our conservative friends do too, just in a different way. Andrew was not one of the more prominent disciples. He's better known in the New Testament as Simon Peter's brother. Simon was the rock star. Andrew was the roadie who hauled the instruments and set, set them up. One speaker described his own brother, who was always in the spotlight. He said he was the quarterback of the high school football team, the editor of the school newspaper, and Joseph in the annual Christmas play every year. He also got the prettiest girls, and he was the teacher's pet. Some of us had siblings like that. Andrew was always in Peter's shadow. Peter was part of Jesus's inner circle, along with James and John. He was there every time something important happened in Jesus's ministry. It was Peter who tried to walk on water. It was Peter that Jesus named the rock and said, on this rock, I will build my church. Andrew may have been there for some of those experiences and during some of those times, but he's rarely mentioned. In fact, he's only mentioned 12 times by name in all the New Testament. And eight times out of those 12, he is referred to as Simon Peter's brother. Andrew had one gift that we know of. He introduced people to Jesus. In fact, it was Andrew who brought his celebrated brother, Peter, to Jesus himself. John tells us that the first thing he did, I don't know if you picked up on that when Larry read for us, but the first thing he did after beginning to follow Jesus was to find his brother and tell him, we found the Messiah, and, and then he brought him to Jesus, John writes. That would be a good inscription for Andrew's tombstone. He brought his brother to Jesus. That would be a good inscription for any of our tombstones. I'd like to have it on mine. He brought a friend to Jesus. It's like the epitaph that should have been on John the Baptist's tombstone. He pointed others to Jesus. What greater compliment can we pay to a human being than that? He or she cared enough about his or her friend or loved one to share their faith. Some of us are uncomfortable about sharing our faith with other people. It's a fact that most people, and I have stated this before, and it's still true today, most people come to church because a friend invited them. They don't don't come because the pastor invited them to come. They don't come because... They hear about what a fantastic preacher he is or she is. They don't come because uh, they've, they've heard the music is great. None of that stuff. People come to church because they're invited by a friend. Yet very few of us take the time to invite a friend or a loved one to church. I think it's ironic. If we did invite more people, there would be more people present in this room this morning. It's something to think about. Some of you are much more comfortable about sharing your faith with your actions, more so than your words. And I understand that, and I think that's okay. But after you leave, I want you to think about something today. I want you to ask yourself, or better yet, prayerfully ask God, If there is something that you can do today or sometime this week to point someone else, someone you know, someone you love, a friend, an acquaintance, to Jesus this week. You might do so by just being a good neighbor. You might do it by talking with a family member and bringing up the subject of their faith. Do it in a loving way. You're not called to be a salesperson. Don't try to shove it down their throat. Don't try to be pushy. Or tell them that they're, they're, they're going to go to hell if they don't believe what you believe, because that's nonsense. Do it in a loving way. Listen carefully to what they have to say. Answer honestly. Share your faith and what you've experienced. It doesn't have to be a heavy, heavy conversation. Here's an important truth. You don't have to be a superstar to impact the lives of other people. Most of us are not superstars of the faith. That doesn't mean that we can't make a significant contribution to the kingdom of God by sharing our love for other people. There's an old African-American spiritual that I love, and it was sung by a guy named George Beverly Shea, And it's called, There is a Balm in Gilead. I don't know how many of you remember it or have ever even heard it. But it speaks to the Andrew, I think, in each of us. It starts like this. There is a balm. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't start like that. It starts, sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sick soul. Is your soul sick today? Having a tough time? You all know what a balm is, right? Something to soothe you. Something to soothe soothe the hurt, make it feel better. There's a balm for us. That balm is God. That balm is Jesus. Another verse says, and I love this verse, if you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus and say he died for all. Andrew couldn't preach like his brother. He couldn't pray like the Apostle Paul. None of us can do that. But he could share the love of Jesus and he could point others to him. And so can you and I. Remember, I know that there are people in this room and people watching right now who are experiencing some painful things in their lives. And I want each of you to be, I just want to remind each of you that there is a relief for some of that pain. Not that it's all going to go away, but that if you will share your pain with others, other people who care about you, give me a call. I care. There are other people in this church that care. Give us a call. Text us, whatever. But the balm, the real soother of the soul, is the Lord Jesus. And so, go to Him. Ask Him for that healing, that ease today. Amen.